0: Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 140, The New Humanity. And in this episode today, I would like to read the second half of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul takes a little bit of time to explain how the church and the members of the church are to, what he says, put on the new man, or put on the new humanity. And this new humanity is, in fact, something that has been created by Christ. And as we saw when we looked at Ephesians chapter 3, how the church chooses to live out this new humanity, or the way they choose to learn Christ, is, in fact, how the church testifies to the glory of God in his manifold wisdom and puts the rulers and authorities. To shame, And so really in the thrust of the book of Ephesians, grasping what it is that the church is supposed to be, how the church is supposed to function in that way, and the contrast between this new way of living and the old way of living that is dominated by the powers is really the thrust of what the church is supposed to be and do in the world. This, I think, and one of the main reasons I want to talk about it today is, I think, often overlooked or misunderstood, or never taught at all in churches. And so I want to take the time this week to unpack this for us, uh, read the passage itself from Ephesians, a passage that will probably be familiar to many of you if you are familiar with the New Testament. But even if you're not, hopefully this will be instructive, informative, and transformative. So let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. And here's what Paul says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. as God in Christ forgave you. Now as I said in the introduction to this episode, this is the section in Ephesians where Paul is talking about the new humanity and that is in fact how I have titled this message um but Paul himself talks about the new self, and this was the ESV, the translation that I read for you just a moment ago. But ultimately, what this is, is the new man. It's it's not the old man, it's the new man. And what Paul is actually getting at here is he is talking about what it is in Christ that has changed, that has happened to the church and those who are, in fact, in Christ to... Um, Cause them to adopt a new way of living, a, a new way of life, um, more or less. And so in Christ, uh, because of what Jesus has done, this new age has actually come. And this is a really important point to make. Um, many times people think of the age to come as the life afterwards. Um, when Jesus returns a second time and and um, creates the new heavens and the earth, new earth, that is the age to come. And that is what is taking place in the future. And many people think of salvation and think of um, heaven or the afterlife as the point of much of what Jesus has done. But Here we are in the season of Easter in the church calendar with a strong emphasis and focus on resurrection life and new life and things coming back to life that were once dead. And one of the main thrusts of the resurrection is to express the fact that what everyone thought was going to happen at the end of time, i.e. the resurrection of all people, Jesus has brought into the present. So when God himself raised a person from the dead, Jesus, he brought into the present something that many people didn't think was going to happen until the future. In fact, that resurrection of the dead that everyone thought was coming in the future is something that was going to bring in the age to come. Well, what the resurrection has taught us is that the age to come... Has actually already begun. And so when we say the age to come has already begun, Jesus is the first fruits of that age to come in the present. And everybody who is attached to Jesus, i.e., his followers, right, the church to whom Paul is writing in Ephesians, also become members of the age to come in the present. And so Paul is writing a letter to the Ephesians explaining what Jesus has done to defeat this worldly powers and rulers, to defeat um, the, the brokenness and fallenness and sinfulness of this current age in order to bring in the age to come. And when he has done that, he has empowered his own followers, the church, to live out the age to come realities in the present. I hope I'm clarifying this in, in such a way because what, I, what I'm trying to get at is that as citizens of Jesus's kingdom and of this coming new age, we put off the practices that were consistent with that old way of life. That, that is a way of life that is now over um, selfishness selfish ambition, greed, aggression, backbiting, gossiping, um, the way of life that people thought was going to get them what they wanted and what they desired out of life, that has been shown to be futile, broken, and deserving of death. Paul has explained all of this in Ephesians 1 through 3. Now he is explaining, based upon who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, that that type of life that Jesus lived, is the kind of life that God will vindicate or raise from the dead in the end. In fact, he's inviting people into that new age reality in the present time. And so Paul says that as citizens of this kingdom and as this coming new age, we put off the kind of practices that were consistent with that old way of life or with that old humanity, which was dominated by these defeated powers. And we put on the new humanity or the new life or the new man that is dominated by Christ. And I'm not sure if you caught it. Paul has some parenthetical statements that he oftentimes makes as he writes. But in verse 20 of the passage I just read from Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about putting off these um, ways of the Gentiles and and don't get caught up in this thinking, oh, Paul's only writing to Jews. He's not writing to Gentiles. Again, the word Gentile just means anyone who isn't a Jew. And much of what Paul's language does in the New Testament is in speaking to the people of God. He then refers to a completely secular type of person who isn't attached in any way, shape, or form to God and/or his people. And sometimes he uses the adjective Gentile to describe just that random, um, you know, out of sync type of of person. And he talks about the hardness of their hearts. Their alienation from God, being darkened in their understanding, having ignorance that is in them, their hearts are callous, they've given themselves up to sensuality, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's It's a very long list of the kinds of things that natural humanity finds themselves caught up in. But then Paul inserts this parenthetical statement in verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And it's a kind of cumbersome statement. It's kind of a weird statement grammatically. We, we might have wanted to insert several new words in there. We might have wanted to say, but that is not what you learned from Christ. That is not uh, what you learned about Christ. That is not how, what Jesus taught you. But, but that's not what Paul says. Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And Christ there forms this direct object. That is not the way you learned Christ. And so, I, you know, it's important to point out, and I, I say this kind of humor, humorlessly, or uh, full of humor, maybe that's the word, but not everybody realizes this. But in the book of Acts, for instance, when Paul goes around preaching, um, Acts tells us oftentimes that Paul reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And this word Christ, is is basically paul 's way of identifying that the humble carpenter named Jesus was in fact the long awaited messiah of Israel, so understand and, and this is what I said kind of in a humor humoring way Christ is not jesus 's last name okay it, it 's not Jesus Christ as in you know my name is Joshua Yoder you know Christ is not some addition to put on. Um, to the end of the word Jesus. And, And I know maybe some of you, that's just completely understandable. You get that. But as you're reading through the New Testament, when the word Christ is used, Christ is not Jesus's last name. Christ is his title. So Jesus is the Christ and the Christ just means the Messiah, the anointed one. So, everyone in Jewish culture was expecting the Messiah, the Christ, to come. And many of them thought that meant deliverance from the Romans, just the same way that they expected the Lord to deliver them from Egypt. And this is why I inserted on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, my Palm Sunday sermon from 2021, where the people had in their minds the expectation of the type of person who most embodied what they imagined the Messiah to be like, what they imagined the Christ to be like. And when Pilate gave them the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, the people's expectations and desires for the Christ were most fully embodied in Barabbas, not Jesus. And so this is why Paul in Acts goes around preaching that Jesus is the Christ, again, not his last name, but Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Now, this is the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.20 when he's trying to correct the living and the ways of the Ephesian Christians. He says, in response to the callousness of the Gentiles, the sensuality, the ignorance that is in them, their darkened hearts, the futility of their minds, all of these things, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And this is important. He doesn't say that is not the way you learned Jesus. He says that is not the way you learned Christ. And so let's think about this for just a second. Learning Christ then, if this is the way we're going to describe it, is a way of life, It's not a doctrine. One of the very first by-the-book episodes I had on the podcast, actually the very first, was Tim Gombas' The Drama of Ephesians. And I laugh about this now, but we actually didn't even talk a lot about Ephesians. I was so enthralled with Tim just as a thinker and as someone who had been challenging me and encouraging me for several years. And that book of his being one that really jump-started a lot of new thinking in my mind and heart. But the reason why I loved his book so much was because he introduced me to this idea that Ephesians is not just some collection of theological doctrines where we, well, Ephesians 1 tells us about election and Ephesians 2 tells us about God's calling and how salvation happens. Paul is writing a narrative explaining what Jesus has done by the power of God and how the church gets invited to be a part of that. And he explains it in cosmic warfare type language, which I think is consistent with the rest of the Bible as I've been talking over the last several episodes. And so it's important to point out that Paul's not just here listing a bunch of doctrines. He's not talking about that. Learning Christ is not studying for a theology exam. It's embracing a way of life, which Paul will go on in the rest of Ephesians 4 to explain in very specific detail. Learning Christ is imitating him, not knowing theological things about him. That is not what learning Christ means. And learning Christ is receiving his way of life as the king's way, right? As the Messiah's way, which is what Christ means. And therefore, the way of the citizens of his kingdom. It's not adhering to some theological system. So that is not the way. And this is important for us to acknowledge is that in the book of Acts, again, for example, the clearest um, descriptor for followers of Jesus was followers of the way. You know, when Jesus identifies himself to his disciples in John 14 as the way and the truth and the life, it's important in church contexts not to get um, sideswiped or sidelined by only thinking of Jesus as the truth. I've been a part of churches this way who stand up and preach doctrine and believe they are being faithful to the person of Jesus by preaching true things about him. And sadly, in some of these contexts, um, in some of the strong reformed circles that I have been a part of, it is fine to have those views but sometimes the, the the teaching devolves into why it's not um, an Arminian view of salvation, why Calvin got it more right, or why a Lutheran view of this is better than this view of that. And maybe it's a personality thing for me, but I lose interest in those conversations pretty quickly because churches tend to elevate the truth component of Jesus over against the ways of Jesus and the life that Jesus is calling people into. And I have watched truth, quote unquote, smother out real life and gloss over patterns of living that Jesus is every bit as interested in as he's interested in the truth. I don't think those three things can be separated But in fact, sometimes they are. And I think when Jesus identifies himself as the way, the truth, and the life, what we need to recognize as Christians is that the way we present the truth and the life we invite people into or offer to them by the way in which we speak the truth is every bit as important as the truth itself and I think in the book of Ephesians, for instance, Paul is laying out not doctrines. He's not laying out theological grids. He's not laying out belief systems. He is very clearly laying out patterns of behavior that are consistent with learning Christ. So I think Paul very closely connects truth. Of course, there's truth, the truth as it is in Jesus. As Paul goes on to say in verse 21. But then he says the truth as it is in Jesus is to put off your old self or the old man, the old humanity, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new humanity, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so again, what Paul is attempting to do here and why this is so important to grasp as the church is because we as the church, as those who are in Christ, are God's representative new humanity. And when we say the words new humanity, what we simply are referring back to is humanity in general. Why then do you need a new humanity? Well, you don't have to read the Bible very far to figure out why you need this. Humanity was created in Genesis 1 and 2 and live together with one another, with the creation and with the Lord in perfect harmony. That's how the Bible describes shalom. It's life in the garden with God, with creation, with one another. But in Genesis 3 and right on through Genesis 11, we have the description of fallen mankind. We have humanity living out of sync with one another, with themselves, with the creation, and with the Lord. We don't have this. In fact, it ends in a a terrible Tower of Babel where the Lord has to scatter the nations and then appoint members of his divine council, as we've looked at, to govern these nations. And many members of the divine council were also corrupt. And so we have this fallen humanity. Genesis 4, I'm sorry, Genesis 12, right through Malachi 4, which is the rest of our Old Testament, is Israel as God's solution to fallen humanity. So Israel is going, Abraham's calling is in direct response to the brokenness of Babel. It's, it's both a, a, um, a, a national response. Like Abram, I'm going to call you. I'm going to choose you, but I'm going to do that for the purpose of expanding you into a great nation. Who's going to be able to bless the nations. And that's exactly what the promise given to Abram in Genesis 12 says we know that Israel doesn't do that very well at all, not as individual followers, not as national followers. The law is given to them, which is good and right and true. The powers corrupt Israel's use of the law. They get greedy, power-hungry leaders in place who claim to be upholding the law but are mistreating people as a result. Again, keeping the way, the truth, and the life together rebukes lots of practices, even practices done by religious people in the name of God, which again um, happens all the time. So God then sends Jesus. And it's important to realize if Israel is God's solution to fallen mankind and they don't resolve the problem, then Jesus comes as Israel and as God's solution to Israel, which remember, is God's solution to fallen mankind. And this is the gospels. This is what the gospels presents to us. It presents to us a savior, a king, a redeemer, a Messiah, a Christ coming who will restore Israel and who will be for Israel what Israel was supposed to be for the world, which then ultimately means Jesus is also being this for the world. So this goes all the way back to the beginning to give us the ability to be re-empowered by the presence of God to live in harmony once again with one another, with the creation, and with God. And this is what it means in the New Testament when Jesus creates the new humanity. Jesus himself is the new man. He's the new Adam. He's the new expression of what all people were supposed to be. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which we know all humanity was created to be in Genesis 1, but their fallenness skewed that, not to the point where man or woman is no longer made in God's image, but that the way Man and woman have chosen to live out their image, um, you know, image bearing relationship to the Lord has been broken. And Jesus, of course, restores that, defeats sin and death, defeats the principalities and powers and shows the world there is a different way. This is why Paul says that is not the way you learned Christ. He's now teaching us there is a different way to live out this humanity. And it is inseparably connected to the way Jesus lived out his humanity. And so in the New Testament, Jesus creates this new humanity in him. And Paul, more than anyone else uses this language um, in him, in Christ, in him, with him, Uh, There probably is no theme in all the writings of Paul, which surfaces more than this idea of being in Christ. And September 24th of 2020, I published a podcast by the book episode called One Forever, Rory Shiner. um, Several of you responded and said, you went out and bought the book. It was a short read, but a very powerful one. And, And Rory's whole book was talking about this union with Christ, this being in Christ. And he gives some powerful illustrations of how that works, how we can think about our relationship with Jesus now. And so Paul expresses this reality for the purpose of the church to live out this new humanity. And he wants to remind us we now live in this time where the current age, this world's um, timeline is fading away. Jesus has defeated the the ways of the world, the ways of the principalities and powers, but that those principalities and powers still hold a lot of people in their sway. There's a lot of power-hungry individuals in our world today. There are people who abuse other people in our world today. There are people who live deceptive lives. There are those who cheat and who steal and who are greedy and who are sensual. That is still very much a part of this world's way of being. And Christians are not exempt from falling prey to still living out those ways of life. So Paul is saying the new age, though, this new humanity that Jesus has created has done so in a very particular way. And the church's main role is to live out being Jesus's body on earth, right? Think in terms of the corporate nature of the church. The church has many members, but we are one body, Why does Paul take the time in the New Testament to say that? He does so because we are a new humanity. We are a new corporate representation of what humanity was always created to be pre-fall. And so what we choose to do as a people, how we choose to live as a people, the practices that we develop amongst ourselves as a people – testifies to the rulers and authorities of their defeat unless of course we don't we could in fact and some churches do this testify to the rulers and authorities that the rulers and authorities are the ones who have actually shown to be victorious in the world and we get backbiting in the church And we get abuse in the church and we get power struggles in the church and we get arrogance in leadership and those who do not seem to care for the least of these the way Jesus did and on and on and on it goes. And so what does Paul do? Paul lists in the very end of the chapter in Ephesians chapter four, a back and forth of the kind of practice that is common in the fallen world power system. Put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, speaking the truth is something that is very important to do, but how we choose to speak the truth is also important. And we've had a lot of people in churches who don't feel the need to be perfectly honest with one another, and it creates all sorts of problems. Well, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, what he means there is give no, um, give, don't give the devil an inhabited place. Don't give him the opportunity to take root and settle down and make himself comfortable in the type of anger that naturally surfaces in human relationships. In the world of the fallen powers, when you're angry, you just naturally get back at the person who was angry with you. You don't work on reconciliation. You don't work on resolving your differences. You don't work on listening first and responding second. You don't show up in grace and compassion with a person who offended you. You blast them right back because that's what everybody else does. And that's what comes naturally to us. Paul says, that's not the way you learned Christ. Christ did not do that. And therefore, as our expression of a new humanity rooted in him... We cannot get comfortable with those kind of practices in our communal life either, or we are failing to live faithfully to the person of Jesus. What does he say? Let the thief no longer steal, right? Put off this kind of behavior where the thief who simply sees the world as, what does somebody else have that I want? I'm going to take what they have to make my life better. What does Paul say? Let the person no longer do that, but rather let him do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So what does Paul say? Paul says, reverse the ideas you have that the world's goods are out there for your benefit. Instead, look at what you have, your own goods for the benefit of somebody else. And so Paul says, put off the one and put on the other. And I really do think that these are two sides of the same coin. I think what Paul's laying out for us is the pattern and the process by which we can learn to stop thinking about others' possessions as things that exist in the world for our benefit. Rather, think of what we could bring to the table for someone else's benefit. And if you say, well, I don't have any material possessions. I don't have any wealth. And Paul's like, then see what you can do to uh, do honest work with your own hands to make some money so that you can provide it to somebody else. It's a pouring out of what you have for the benefit of those around you, just like Jesus did. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This one is huge. Corrupting talk talk that is damaging, talk that isn't helpful, talk that doesn't build up. And what does Paul say in response, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now imagine if the only words the church chose to speak were words that gave grace to those who hear. How often do you hear or have you heard Christians quote unquote, speak truth in a way that seems to tear people down and rip them apart. Paul's like, that's not what you were doing. That is not learning Christ. That is not embracing the truth as it is in Jesus. This is a challenging thing to do. You say, well, Jesus didn't hide away, shy away from the truth. He spoke truth all the time to people, um, to, you know, to challenge them. Well, I want to ask for you to, to, to be honest and ask who the people are in the gospels that Jesus spoke the truth in a harsh manner toward. And I think you will be hard pressed to find Jesus, find anyone who is not a follower of him or who claims to be associated with God in any way. He does not speak harshly to those people. He speaks very graciously and Paul adopts a very similar pattern in Acts 17 when he speaks to the idolaters on, um, in Athens where he speaks to them about their idolatry, but he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't shame them and he doesn't mock them. He says to them, you have all these gods that you worship. You even have an idol um, inscribed to an unknown God. Allow me to introduce you to the unknown God. And yet when Paul writes to the Romans, in Romans chapter one, to a gathering where he knows that there are Christians, he speaks very differently to them about their own sin and complicity in their sin. And I think that's a good reminder for us is that when Paul speaks or when Jesus speaks to those who have no association or no affiliation, i.e. the nations, right? Those on the outside looking in, the stance toward them in the truth that you speak is very different, is altogether different actually than it is the way you speak in house, if you will. And so in the Old Testament, it's the same. The Lord rebuked Israel for its sins to a greater extent than he rebuked the nations because Israel had less of an excuse to live in the ways that they did than the nations did. Same thing is true in the church. Paul will be very direct and very blunt With the church, because the church should know the ways of Christ. Whereas those in the world shouldn't be expected to know that at all. Why? Because the church is the one who is supposed to represent the ways of Christ to the world. And so sometimes in our culture... We find that the culture itself doesn't know the way of Christ. It's as if they haven't learned Christ. And I would like to propose that the fault there lies with the church, not with the world. Because how else is the world supposed to know the ways of Christ when the church is supposed to be his body on the earth? This is why I think this discussion in Ephesians 4 is so central. But Paul goes on and he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now Paul's gonna explain to us like we've been given the power of God by God in order to live out what he's calling us to do. So this isn't just up to us, but he's saying if we choose to turn a blind eye to this, if we choose to allow corrupting talk to pour out of our mouths, if we choose not to focus on being gracious and those who hear our statements to receive it as grace in their lives and look for ways to pour ourselves out for the benefit of other people, we are in fact grieving. We are saddening the spirit of God, the spirit of God who was given as our seal, as our guarantee of what is yet to come in the blessings of the Lord. Well, if we squelch that, if we grieve him in the process, we are not actually relying upon the spirit the way the spirit was intended. And so then Paul at- ends it by just saying, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so this is one big long explanation of the kind of life that the church is to put on. The church is to put on this new humanity which they have been created in and they are to put off this old humanity. All around them, people are living out the old humanity and for the church to testify to the powers of their defeat is for the church to choose to live out the new humanity While the old humanity is being lived out by the rest of the world. This is why it will not work. And this is again, why Jesus says to the church, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Notice that Jesus never sends out wolves in the midst of wolves. Jesus knows full well that in order to be an effective sheep, you cannot act in the same way as the culture around you. We are not just testifying to truth versus untruth. This, this is where I do think that the church today has found itself in a world of trouble is the church has tried to reduce the Christian faith to a matter of truth versus untruth. And they like to size themselves up against other religions, um, other denominations, other um, people groups of different kinds and get into doctrinal debates about truth. Whereas Jesus wants us to connect things that are true, the truth as it is in Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.21, and connect that to the way you learned Christ. There is a series of patterns that are to grip the hearts of followers of Jesus, which causes them to live in tender hearted, compassionate, forgiving type of ways. Hold to your truth, but express it in ways that invite others in to a different kind of life, a life that has victory over the powers, that doesn't get sucked in to bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander that embraces the help offered by the Holy Spirit so that we are able to live the ways of Christ in the midst of a world that thinks that's garbage. I mean, listen, how many times did Jesus get mocked on the cross? If you're the Christ come down If you think you're so good and right, why don't you do X, Y, Z? Imagine those accusations hurled at the church and how tempting it would be to follow the ways of the powers and to just lash out in response. Paul says the ways of Christ don't do that and therefore his followers don't do that either. And so Michael Gorman, I think, kind of captures this well in his book, Participating in Christ. And he says that Jesus, the incarnate, crucified and exalted living Messiah is both the paradigm and the provider of the rights renouncing others regarding cruciform humility and love needed for existence in the Christian community. And I think he's exactly right. Jesus is the paradigm. He's the pattern, but he's also the provider He's given us his Holy Spirit, the very spirit that empowered him to live the life he lived on the earth in order for us to live out rights renouncing, others regarding cruciform humility and love that is supposed to be the essence, the the, the flavor, the aroma that pours out of the church, that pours out of the people of God. And in those churches, recognizing that some of the most valuable growth that we can participate in as followers of Jesus is to learn how to be others regarding and cruciform humility and love and renouncing of our rights in the way we choose to live amongst each other. And then through those patterns become people who learn to ask for forgiveness who learn to share truth, but do it in love. If it comes in the form of a rebuke, you do it giving the person you believe is in need of a rebuke as much of the benefit of the doubt as you can while loving them enough to tell them the truth about how they've treated you or how you think what they are doing is wrong and come to an understanding that you both can move forward in as you express the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace but as you express to one another and to the world, what living out the way of Christ looks like in the world. And this is where I see churches having tremendous opportunity for growth. And yet I have watched churches and been involved with churches who squelch this opportunity all the time in the name of, we just focus on the truth. Paul would say, That is not the way you learned Christ. The truth as it is in Jesus is filled with action. It's filled with behaviors. It's filled with patterns that change and that adjust and that are not afraid to call out behaviors and actions as more consistent with the fallen ways of the principalities and powers than they are of the ways of Christ. This is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to be the new humanity, and it is in fact in contrast to fallen humanity. So Paul's giving the church the keys. He's opening us up to the reality that if we want to live out the beauty of the age to come in the present, it starts with our dependence upon the Holy Spirit, not to grieve him, but to welcome his presence into our lives and to know that when he points out the brokenness that is a part of our lives, that we decide to be among the first to say, show me, show me your ways so that I might follow you faithfully. So that's really all I have for this week on the podcast. Um, Again, I, I love talking about this. This is really why I've started this little series within the podcast. I want us to get to this discussion about how the church is called to function and flourish in our world and what it really means to honor God with our communal life as well as our individual lives. And I have a few more episodes planned for um, the the book of Ephesians. And then I don't exactly know where we're going to go after that. I I don't mind figuring this out as we go. I trust that if this podcast um, is continuing to serve those of you who listen in each week, then the Holy Spirit will give me a direction to take it in. Or if any of you feel the need to reach out and, and, and give me some suggestions, I'm happy to receive those suggestions. I, I can't guarantee that what you suggest will click with me in a way that I'll want to put in that kind of work, but we might both be surprised. So if you have some thoughts or ideas or even just questions of things that you would love to have a discussion about, um, email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. And let me know. Um, That that is a a genuine invitation for you. Um, I would love to hear what you think. And if some um, really good questions come across the table, maybe we'll just turn those into episodes and see what we can do to grow together and be challenged and strengthened. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a fantastic week and I will talk to you next time.